This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Hard Anodized Sprockets, up to 66% lighter than steel sprockets. Welcome to the latest episode of the Paddock Pass podcast, powered by Fly Racing, and of course, presented by Rental Street Hard Anodized Chain Wheels. My name is Adam Wheeler, and I want to ask David Emmett, who's on the call with me now. Uh, Dave, have you tried any new motorcycles yet? Because the tension is starting to build. Uh, frankly, pull your finger out because we need an update. Uh, one, it's been raining, so no. Obviously, I haven't been riding uh, uh, test riding motorbikes because there would be no point. And uh, two, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but there's been motor, uh, motorbike racing going on, so um, I've been a bit busy. Dave, you're the worst advert possible for living in the Netherlands because every time we talk for the podcast, it's always raining. It's preventing you getting out on two wheels. Perhaps explains a lot. Um, also on the call, Neil Morrison. He's buried deep in the uh, the centre of Vienna somewhere. Escaped Spielberg for a couple of days before he returns to the uh, Grand Prix of Osterich. Uh Neil, have you been overloading on Strudel? Österreich. Österreich. Uh, uh, my apologies. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. I hope you're wearing your Lederhosen as well. While you, you know, Lederhosen, Lederhosen. I might try and uh, put the belt on mine up a couple of notches to get the right pronunciation on that. But Neil, what have you been up to in Vienna? Um, obviously, you've been finishing work after the first Grand Prix in Austria, but uh, have you been doing anything else? Have you been um, chatting to any frowls? Uh, no, I'm basically been mourning the fact that David Emmett wasn't in Austria this year because getting to see him wear his dirndl uh, to the Austrian Grand Prix is one of the highlights of the year. Um, but apart from that, um, yep, working, as you say, I'd basically been uh, locked up in a little hotel room. Um, went out for a walk last night, met up with uh, our friend and colleague, Matt Oxley, uh, for dinner and uh, walked around yeah lovely center of vienna wonderful wonderful city i must say we have to try and get matt on the uh the podcast eventually i'm sure he'll be he's got some good stories of course you know i mean his career stretching back way beyond the you know the two-stroke golden age of uh, MotoGP gp would be a good listen yeah but, um, his knowledge of the history of the sport is uh well it would put put mine to shame i'd say and um you mentioned that word before forgive my ignorance what is a dundall it sounds like something irish a dirndl is the lovely dress, which uh, is the traditional dress of Austrian women. It's the, in fact, uh, uh, it looks a little bit, I think, uh, like Basque women wear something very similar. It's like a long dress and it's very decorative. And uh, I think it's just about knee length sort of thing and um, uh, quite lacy and frilly and, um, uh, and you know. Uh, with puffy sleeves and and the whole nine were nine yards. I'm going to need to need to buy a new one because the last time I wore my Austrian dirndl, I was considerably larger than I am now. I thought uh, it might have been something of a joke, Dave. I thought Neil might have been casting aspersions on your character, but obviously not. He looks good in lace and frills. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, that's I take that as a compliment. Guys, let's uh, have a quick um, rerun, um, you know, of the Michelin Grand Prix Styria on Sunday. Uh, we expected rain. It didn't arrive. We had a dry race. Uh, we had a slightly reduced race after a fiery start, of course, to the MotoGP. Um, a quick uh, recap of the podiums. We saw Jorge Martin, of course, uh, win his first Grand Prix race in the Premier Class. Uh, got good form, of course, at the uh, Red Bull Ring. Joan Mir. Um, working out how to use Suzuki's whole shot device quite effectively. But then, you know, the Spaniard was also pretty fast 12 months ago, more or less, uh, at the same venue. And then Fabio Quattararo, uh, you know, who was panicking, probably losing a little bit of sleep on Sunday or Saturday night, rather, with the uh, the, the, the prospect of 
you know, heavy rainfall on Sunday that didn't arrive, taking another podium finish and stretching his lead in the championship to 40 points, almost to Grand Prix as we're nudging past the halfway point of the season. And of course, with a lot of uh, speculation and debate and doubt, I would say, over the MotoGP calendar, it remains to be seen how many races we'll actually have left. In Moto2, uh, Marco Bezzecchi was fast from the outset, uh, made good on his uh, victory. How many is that now, Neil, for the Italian this season? First one? First one. Okay, big statement. Aaron Kinnett, everybody's uh, favourite tattoo artist victim in second place on the podium. And of course, uh, Fernandez, but a different kind. Augustin making uh, third place and a good finish for the Mark VDS uh, squad powered by Elf Racing result. And in Moto3, Pedro Acosta, uh, against Sergio Garcia, uh, probably the, the best race of the weekend, it has to be said, uh, with Romano Fernati, everybody's favourite psychopath in third place. Uh, Pedro Acosta in the standings now uh, over 50 points ahead, so he does have that two-race advantage. And uh, Remy Gardner, who's a uh, costly mistake, uh, late into the Moto2 race, still leading the way by 35 points. We're going to get right into the podcast straight away. I'm looking at you, Dave. Who was your winner and loser from last Sunday or last weekend? Um, where, I mean, it's tempting to take Jorge Martin just because he, he had such an outstanding weekend. Um, uh, but I think I'm going to go with Fabio Quasararo uh, precisely because of what you said, that, you know, he must have been absolutely... Um, uh, he must have spent most of Saturday night emptying his bowels uh, with the thought of having to ride in the rain because the bike was no good in the rain. It was, you know, slow in the wet and absolutely terrible um, in the half and half conditions. Um, he was really afraid of losing a lot of points in the championship. Um, Sunday comes, wet warm up. Uh, the track starts to dry. You know, the Moto3 race, they were racing on wets and uh, on a dry line. The Moto2 race, they were racing on slicks with some damp patches. Um, the MotoGP race was completely dry. And also, um, because the race was restarted, uh, you know, Pekka Banyar got off to a decent start in the first race, uh, but he was nowhere in the second uh, uh, in the second race um, because he, he changed his tyres. He went hard front and soft rear instead of medium-medium. That turned out to be uh, a mistake. Um, and he comes away, Fabio Quattararo comes away with a podium, uh, having extended his lead, uh, having, um, sure, he got beaten by a Ducati, but he got beaten by a completely irrelevant Ducati, you know? Um, the uh, the biggest loss he suffered was the fact that uh, Juan Mies got four points back on him. So, I mean, to me, Fabio Quattararo, he probably came into this weekend really, really afraid of losing a lot of his lead, a lot of his advantage in the championship and uh, thinking, you know, two weeks' time when he leaves after after Austria too, uh, yeah, I'm really going to have to work in the second half of the championship. But this this week, this weekend, I think he made a, he took a really big step towards, uh, uh, towards winning his first MotoGP title because, I mean... Part of it was him. He was in the dry. He was really, really fast. Um, but he had, you know, a lot of cards fell in his favour. They fell his way. Uh, you know, the, the 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 dice all rolled extremely favourably. Uh, and he comes away, you know, seriously in charge of the championship and uh, can afford to have a bad weekend next weekend. Do you think we're seeing, you know, the mature kind of? Quattararo that we expected would surface a little bit last year and was lacking. I mean, you know, we, we he, he should have been more competitive in 2020. 
you know, of course, after the ref double, and then it kind of melted away. But this this time, there isn't any panic or or you know tantrums or whatever else. No, exactly. I mean, I think uh, the bike is just a little bit better. Uh, they, they've taken sort of uh, they've taken the weak points away, which means that when he has a bad weekend, he doesn't have such a terrible weekend. Uh, he said it himself in the in the press conference. You know, he's finishing third, fourth, fifth instead of fifteenth. Um, that makes a huge difference. He is a lot more comfortable. He, he actually exudes that. You can sort of see him. You know, even though I'm only seeing him over Zoom, uh, over Zoom, or seeing him uh, uh, sort of via screens, you can tell he's so much uh, calmer than he was uh, previously. Um, he's looking very, he's looking very, very good. And it, it was interesting. He also referenced. Uh, Joan Mir's championship last year for the way to win a championship. You know, he says, look, the, the way to do it is through consistency. And, um, you know, as I keep on saying, you win championships on your bad days, not on your good days. On your good days, you have to win. But on your bad days, you have to do as what you have to score as many points as possible. And that's absolutely what, uh, what Quattraro was doing. Dave, I don't know who you were going to pick for your loser, but, you know, just bouncing off that point, Yamaha, uh, you say the bikes improved a little bit, but you could say for the rest of their riders, it's still like uh, something of a torrid experience. I mean, there were contributing factors to Maverick Vinales this weekend, but to go from last to you know the podium in Assen and then back to last position, uh, you know, this the, the bike. The M1 is obviously working for Fabio, but then for Valentino Rossi, um, Franco Morbidelli, of course, absent for three rounds, and then um, you know uh, the, the, the Spaniard who's just assumed to be signing for Aprilia. It's still something of a nightmare. Neil, what, what was your kind of take, uh, you know, on on Fabio's performance, and do you think uh, his teammate is as a contender for Dave's loser, or you know, we we always know like Dave likes to pick a, a rather fruity kind of loser anyway. Uh, I think that's maybe because Dave is something of a fruity loser himself. Um, but yeah, no, Fabio was great. I was uh, I was actually going to say Fabio was my big winner of the weekend just for that exact reason that he was probably anticipating having a big chunk of his championship lead taken away from him. Um, and he walked away with um, six more points to Joanne Zarco. So um, great from Fabio. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure who Dave's going to choose as uh, his loser, but I think Maverick would have to be one of the, one of the contenders. Um, if I was to name my winner from the weekend, I would have to say uh, Joanne Mir, um, just because I think in the sort of uh, demeanor of Mir after the race, um, there was kind of real sort of belief. And I saw crew chief uh, Frankie Carcetti, uh tweeting something to the uh, to the tune of, uh, yeah, the comeback starts here. And um, we all know that Mir, it was, you know, it wasn't the second half of last season, but it was kind of from this run of tracks onwards, um, going to the likes of uh, going to the likes of Austria again, then Misano, Aragon, where we made really made big, big inroads. Um, obviously, Fabio Yamaha are stronger this year, but I think um, Mir's first podium with uh, Suzuki's ride height device um, means that I think we're going to see a lot more of him in the podium from now until the end of the year. Yeah, yeah. The the way that he handled that ride height device was just outstanding. I mean, it made a big difference. He said he said himself, uh, like uh, it's easy to uh, remember to use this thing if you can feel the difference it makes. Um, uh, it made a big difference in acceleration, uh, but he stuck through it as soon as they put it on the bike on Saturday morning. He stuck with it uh, in both practices. Put a lot of time into it. Alex Rins didn't concentrate so much on it, which I think he paid for in the end. Um, uh, he was also trying to figure it out from 
trying to figure all of the details out because it's not as simple as, you know, you just press the button and the back goes down and that's the rest of it. You press the button, the back goes down. That means uh, that when you approach the braking point, the rear of the bike is lower, which means you have to adjust your braking point. Think about how the, the bike is going to react. It's going to pitch further forward. Okay, so we've got to do a deal with that. He's got to talk to his crew chief about how to handle that. Do we need to change the front suspension to cope with that? What does it do to the electronics? All the rest of it. He was just like thinking, thinking, thinking. This, I think, is um, where his intelligence really shone through. And it was, it was just outstanding by uh, by Juan Mir. And I completely agree with Neil. The second half of the season really does start to start here. And I think he's going to end up being the big challenger to uh, Fabio. Well, if Alex Jones is also struggling with the front end of the Suzuki, then, you know, he's, he's got further complications now as they try to get their head around, you know, how to best utilise that kind of asset. But who, who was your winner from the Grand Prix, Dave? Uh, your loser, rather. My, uh, my loser? Well, we haven't heard your winner yet, uh, um, uh, Adam. Who was, your winner? who was your winner from the Grand Prix? Well, I'm, I'm doubling up on the winner and loser with KTM. Uh, why? Because, you know, Danny Pedrosa like destroying one of the race bikes, of course. Uh, Miguel Oliveira's small uh, crack in his right wrist from the very first kind of lapse or towards the second end of the FP1 um, on Friday, pretty much, I mean, it hasn't wrecked his season at all. I mean, he was still able to be competitive in the race. And he's actually said that the uh, the pain and the injury was improving throughout the day as they were, you know, seeking treatment and physiotherapy. But, you know, there were people talking about Miguel Oliveira, you know, on Thursday as a potential, you know, champion or a title contender in, in the second half of the MotoGP season. So you have to wonder how this injury is going to affect, you know, his progress. Uh, and you think about the next tracks we go to, Silverstone, incredibly quick, uh, Mizano, very twisty, um, you know, Aragon as well is like a mix of pretty much everything. Um, if he cannot fix that, that wrist problem, which, you know, KTM initially said was similar to what Paulus Bargaro suffered in his crash in Aragon and needed surgery back in Barcelona, then uh, three, uh, two years ago, then, you know, it's, it, it could be a real setback. So, you know, the losers were, you know, Miguel Oliveira being KTM's finest rider so far this season, having this problem, Danny Pedrosa having the, the controversial uh, crash with uh, Lorenzo Salvadori, of course, uh, that delayed the race and, and made it run on a 27 lap distance. But then Brand Brindner, you know, uh, produced the goods, um, proving again that he's a hopeless qualifier, but then a fantastic motorcycle racer uh, to come from 16th on the grid, um, as we spoke about in the Paddock uh, podcast note show on Sunday, um, to find that necessary rhythm and also have the confidence really um, in a tyre that the KTMs are really, a front tyre that the KTMs are really struggling with in terms of uh, lasting performance, um, you know, to be able to take two positions on the final lap from Taka Nakagami and Yoan Zarko uh, was, was uh, outstanding. Uh, also interesting, the Michelin announced uh, to, today, literally about half an hour ago, uh, that they're going to be being, uh, being they are going to be bringing a different front tire to the a different hard front tire uh, to the race. Instead of an asymmetric one, it's going to be a symmetric one. Presumably, it'll be a little bit stiffer. That might help. Um, Brad Binder, because Brad Binder was saying, you know, the reason I can't qualify well is because I can't push hard through uh, through qualifying. The, the, the front is just too soft. And that's something you can manage over race distance because you're not going sort of, you know, 100% 
everywhere or 100 and a little bit percent everywhere uh, you're taking a bit a bit more manage a margin and you're sort of balancing your risk more so um i think that's going to be interesting to see if brad binder ever ever does crack qualifying then god help the rest of us because he really is um incredibly quick he's incredibly talented it's just that he never seems to turn up until sunday and i think that um that is a serious uh, that, that's a serious problem it was a kind of a trait for Valentino Rossi's Grand Prix in recent years where, you know, there would not be a great deal of competitiveness in, in the, you know, the Friday and the Saturday work, but then Sunday he would somehow always be in the mix for the podium running. But, uh, you know, when Michelin are bringing a new front tire, Dave, that's got to be good news for Oliveira as well, because the huge chunks uh, seen out of the, the tire that ultimately ended his race prematurely were, were pretty shocking. And I guess... You know, you, you can expect it's a mechanical sport, so there's no reason to expect the Michelin tyres are always going to be 100%, you know, spot on in terms of their their performance and their quality. But uh, it was a pretty serious defect that, you know, couldn't, well, it has costed a lot of points for the Portuguese. Yeah, exactly. It, it, is, it is extremely rare for tyres to actually lose um, material like that because it was great big chunks off of the front. Um Obviously, the KTM's were the bikes which were loading the front most, uh, so they were struggling the most. They were putting the most stress into it. Uh, but it does look like there might have been some kind of a defect. Um, and uh, you know, like you say, like everyone has mechanical. It is a mechanical sport. Everyone has mechanical problems. Um, uh, Michelin to their, I mean. Michelin don't have very many serious mechanical uh, uh, issues, proper defects. There are there's sort of questions sometimes about uh, quality control in the terms that one tire feels just a little bit different to another one, and there's differences in uh, in grip. But there are so many there's so many different factors go into creating grip, uh, temperature, setup, spring rate, uh, you know, braking points, all sorts of things that it where your, your electronics, your traction control, your torque maps. You, you know where you're putting your throttle on all the rest of it all of these things go into um the way that the tires behave that it becomes really really difficult to actually say uh, exactly how how much of some of the problems are down to michelin uh, or down to just poor setup and in this case it really looks like there was some kind of a a, a defect with that tire I would also like to know you know from maybe Piero Taramaso he's, he's never really going to tell everybody but you know over the last two to three years especially i wonder how the the michelin r&d budget has has been slashed because of the pandemic and you know the logistical difficulties in in ferry and tires around the world i mean all of that also must have had an impact on their program uh, when it comes to providing material for motor gp uh, i think it would be a little naive to assume that michelin haven't had the parameters of their work change somewhat but uh neil coming over to you what was your uh you know before we move on and, and, and examine a few other talking points from from the grand prix uh who is your your loser uh, apart from throwing a barb at dave um i think my loser would i mean it's going to sound a bit strange because one of the riders won the race but i have to say ducati because the three riders that are, are challenging uh, fabio quartararo in the championship didn't have the best day jack miller crashed out becca bagnaia was looking great in the first one but he intimated that he had a bit of a duff rear tire uh didn't have any rear grip in the second uh race um and uh obviously johan zarko um got um got demoted on the last lap to finish sixth so 
Um, this is a Ducati track, obviously. Um, Martin was sensational, but uh, Jorge Martin's not going to win the championship this year. And uh, Ducati have three riders that they are pinning their hopes on. And um, it's looking more and more unlikely that any of them um, will be able to push Quadraro until the end because if they can't beat him here at uh, at the Red Bull Ring, then um, you know how are they going to fare when we get to Misano or to Silverstone or to um, Portimao uh, later in the year? So uh, yeah, I would say um, I would say although fantastic, Martin. We'll talk about him in a little bit, I'm sure. But great weekend, sensational performance. Um, but the same really can't be said of the other guys. And uh, in terms of the championship, that's going to I think eat away at. Um, Gigi and uh, Tarlotti. Could we also tie Jack Miller into that, Neil? I mean, that, that crash also could, you know, push him maybe out of uh, the serious running for the championship. I mean, Fabio, as we said, leading by 40 points. But after that, you have four riders split by only 32. So it's uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's hard to call them running for second place if, if you want to start getting premature. But uh, Miller's crash, um, perhaps more than any other this season, was was the most disappointing. Mm. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Um, Miller, you know, he said himself that he had uh, basically a podium in the bag. Um, but uh, that crash out, um, I think 17 laps in, 16, 17 laps in, um, was uh, was pretty disastrous. And um, I mean, it's tough to see Jack coming back from, uh, where was he, 72 points back in the championship. It's tough to see him making that up. Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, Jack Miller, the honest thing, I mean, I did like his honesty, the fact that he held his hand up, said, it was my fault, uh, I did it wrong, uh, I, you know, was too eager, pushed too hard, lost the front and, uh, and lost it, so it was, um, I think he reacted correctly he held his hand up he owned up to his mistake and he was suitably contrite about it um but yeah the fact that he's now over 70 points behind um uh, fabio quasararo he's just given himself a massive mountain to climb my first talking point of the podcast is the red bull ring itself um i have to admit that i love the place uh you know it's properly old school um it's fast spectacular uh the setting is amazing if we talk away from the racetrack itself uh, as you'd expect from the millions of Red Bull money pumped in the, the, the facilities uh, and, the, and the construction, the whole kind of even the ethos around the place is absolutely first class. Um, you know, we haven't had the easiest time as, as accredited print media, um, you know, going to races lately. But if there is one kind of installation you, you, you have to be trapped in, then, you know, you can't get worse than the, the Red Bull or better than the Red Bull ring, I should say. Um, everything from not only the, the, the quality of the surroundings there, but also the staff and how helpful everybody was. It was uh, was brilliant. Um, you know, I'd recommend any race fan to go there as well. Uh, curiously, there wasn't too many people. Uh, I was expecting a much more packed event, although there seems to be some indication that um, fans that had tickets uh, for previous races, um, you know, who couldn't come last year were given another opportunity to travel to the Grand Prix last weekend. Uh, there wasn't too much uptake for that. But then uh, it seems that, you know, next weekend is going to be far busier. Uh, I just wonder what your views were, because, you know, if we talk about the racetrack itself, then there's plenty of critics. There seems to be riders that love and hate it. Um, there's some bizarre talk that, uh, you know, the fantastic turn two is going to be, you know, sliced up into a horrific chicane. Um, I think there are far too many chicanes in the world. We don't need another one. Um, of course, rider safety, you have to be absolutely on the side of the riders when it comes to, you know, their opinions and thoughts. But uh, 
you know, I think it's it's a track that should be left untouched, pretty much like the the fantastic scenery around it. Um, Neil, we we you know we shared a press room and those huge windows. We were, we were able to have a, an amazing view for for the period of three to four days. Uh, I just wondered, do you agree, or do you think that the place is a is a death trap for want of a better word? Um, yeah, I think it's a it's a stunning venue. It's a stunning setting. Uh, facilities are, as you mentioned, out, out of this world. Um, but uh, yeah, it does it does concern me that uh, parts of the track are as uh, as kind of dangerous and as hairy as they are. Um, I think for the most part the track's okay, but it's just the uh, the run up from turn one to turn three and then the run down to turn four where you look at the barriers either side of the track and you just think that is a bit too close for this day and age in Grand Prix racing. Um, and also the layout at turn two and turn three. I mean, part of it is stunning. It's a, it's a stunning place to go and watch next to the track and to see those guys make the transition where they're pitching their bikes left at sixth gear um, over 300 Ks and then having to put on the brakes to one of the slowest corners in the championship, shift their body weight right across. I mean, it is a real impressive test of uh, of riding skill, of bravery, um, of precision. Um, but as we saw last year, um, it very nearly ended in absolute tragedy. Um, and it's a little surprising that uh, nothing was done before this year's races, I think, um, just because of the, the resources and money that is at the disposal of, uh, of the owner of the Red Bull Ring. Um, and um, yeah, uh, the, the idea of, I think there's there's got to be better solutions than just putting a, a, a chicane uh, in the middle of uh, turn one and turn three, as I think uh, some of our Austrian colleagues might have, hint, might have suggested uh, could be coming um, next year. So um, yeah, I think part of me, it's a little bit like Magello in some respects that I, mean, I kind of love the place. I love going to the, to the Red Bull ring, but uh, yeah, I do harbor some fears whenever uh, we go racing. And it's one of those places where before the, the lights go out, you just say a little, uh, you know, a few words under your breath, just hoping that everyone makes it back to the flag. Uh, the difference with Mugello, of course, is that Mugello is, um, you know, it, it, they don't have multi-billion uh, multi-billionaire owners. Um, I mean, if it was just a question of money, the, 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 the Red Bull ring could be fixed in seconds. You know, literally Dieter Mateschitz has got more money than God. Uh, he's the richest man in Austria. Um, he has his own air force and his own space program. So you would think that they could afford to put some money into, into fixing the track. It is, the setting is fantastic. The facilities are just out of this world. Absolutely the best in the world. Um, the track itself is in a bit of a difficult situation in the fact that it's up against the mountainside and the trouble with mountains is they are um, uh, inconvenient shapes and so it does make moving things around a bit like a, 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 a better solution might be for example uh, to make turn two much more uh, much more of a corner um, so that you are sort of slowing you're slowing down you're going much slower through turn two uh, and then you have to turn you know have slightly less of a tight turn for, for for turn one or for turn three rather it's a fantastic it's as it is right now it's one of the most challenging and difficult and fascinating parts of the uh, on the calendar um and you would hate to see it go but it is just not it's just not safe for motorcycles uh, the same with the run from from three to four the it's extremely narrow down there the barriers are very close uh, there's not a lot of runoff uh, the, they had to move turn 
10 back uh, uh, paint some, you know, they, they, they have to paint stuff on the track there because there's not enough runoff on the outside of turn, uh, of turn 10, which I think is probably the most difficult problem to fix. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, it, I have a love-hate relationship with it. I think it's a fantastic facility. It genuinely is one of the best in the world. Um, I just wish they would put the money into fix the place imaginatively and there are people who have much finer minds than I do and far more experience um, uh, with circuit design who would be capable of making it much much safer and still retain its character we were actually uh, to mention his name again talking with uh, Matt Oxley and he used to race uh, endurance um, on the old layout um, you know of the Red Bull ring uh, which I think was easy in a way uh, I can't remember what the story was Neil I think it was a land acquisition um, that forced the, the, the circuit to make the the turn one a little bit more severe and then you know that drive up turn two to turn three whereas before yes there used to be more of a loop in actual fact and um, what we'll do is uh, I took a picture of one of the old Formula One uh, posters that's in the tunnel going underneath the track from the paddock to the media center and we'll put it up on our twitter so if people want to have a look you know when the show is published they can have a look at this uh, how the the red bull ring used to be or of course they can google it and find it themselves but you know you do wonder if there was the possibility for mr matajic to delve into his pockets and expand that kind of land i know it's uh you know kind of appropriating space is not the easiest thing in the world especially for a motorsport circuit but uh, that could be the solution. If we if we look at the the incident with Pedrosa and Sabadori, I don't. I mean, it came at the most problematic corner, arguably in Moto Grand Prix. But um, you know, it, it wasn't caused by the the corner, was it? I mean, it was a slow speed crash from Pedrosa, and Sabadori wouldn't have been able to see him. That was the impact, and then it ended. The, the repercussion was spectacular, I and mean, we saw the fire. It was at least 20, 25 minutes of the whole. Uh, track crew having to you know clean that particular part of the track which they did fantastically um it, it's kind of another addition to the uh the black hall of fame for that 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 particular part of the track but it wasn't something that's uh, you know caused by it was it no i mean no that was that was just one of those accidents the the risk sometimes at the red bull ring we saw this in motor two last year as well is there's a lot of sort of like blind crests and humps and so if you fall just in front of or just behind a hump then riders behind can't actually see you but um you know the the, the fireball was caused just by a freak accident because lorenzo Savadori's bike struck uh the um danny pedrosa's KTM at just the wrong angle to puncture the fuel tank. That is actually incredibly difficult uh, uh, for, for that to happen. It's very, very rare. Uh, also because, you know, the, the fuel tank is basically underneath the seat. And so you have to sort of let it hit it at the right, uh, at the right angle. Um, the fact that it was Savadori, uh, I was uh, talking to Peter Bomb earlier and he was um, the uh, you know, ex-crew ex chief and he was saying that what you see with a lot of these accidents where someone crashes and then someone hits either them or their bikes it's usually bikes from a lot further uh, further back because if it happens in front of you you'll see all of the riders avoid it because they can see it happening uh, but it's the riders who are further back who are unsighted who can't see what's going on who don't have time to react because it really comes up on them because they're not expecting it whereas the riders who are just behind sort of see it happen in front of them and are, all, are already starting to react so um but yeah th this particular one is not was not a track related crash i don't think Okay, so just before we move on to the talking points, guys, that you have from the Grand Prix, we'll take a, a quick break and we'll be back after these words. 
Renthal Street ultralight rear sprockets are CNC machined from an advanced aluminum, keeping rotating unsprung mass to a minimum. The integral hard anodized finish has a higher resistance to mechanical wear, which increases its longevity. Available for a huge range of motorcycles with options for a number of teeth and chain pitch. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. Post Michelin Grand Prix Asteria, uh, Neil Morrison. Tell us about your kind of uh, talking point that you know surfaced from uh, you know this this latest this tenth round of MotoGP. Uh, you know, was there anything from the weekend that has been um, you know on your your sizable chest? There was Adam Wheeler, yes, and it was the man that won the race. It was Mr. Jorge Martin's uh, stunning performance. Uh, I kind of was taken aback when I was checking the stats on Saturday after he scored pretty fantastic pole position. Um, for, completely forgot that uh, he had missed a whole chunk of races, so this is actually only his sixth GP. Uh, he's already had two poles in that time. He's had two podiums. One of them was a win, and um, he joins a very select group of, uh, I think, five riders that have uh, won MotoGP races in their rookie season. So it's um, it's quite... Uh, it's a rare feat um, for him to do that. Um, I don't want to come across as smug and uh, insufferable, um, although some. Uh, so, Dave, <laughs> moving straight onto your point. Although some of you might say that that's uh, that's a default setting for me, um, but um, I mean, I was expecting Jorge to do something quite interesting this weekend, um, but I wasn't expecting him to do pole position and race win. Um, and it was just the manner of the win that uh, that really stood out. The calmness, um, the lack of being flustered, the lack of pressure. Um, he's, he was obviously a, an excellent Model 3 rider. Maybe not quite as impressive as in, in Model 2. I was a little disappointed overall with his Model 2 performance uh, last year. Um, but he just looked like the the kind of the real deal, the finished the finished article um, from this uh, from this performance. Um, and the scary thing for the others is he was saying that uh, there's still quite a lot uh, more to come at this weekend. Um, he still feels in some sectors of the track that there's some tents to gain. So. Uh, yeah, we saw the massive jump that Jorge made from race one in Qatar to race two in Qatar this year. I mean, if we're, we're going to be seeing something similar, um, Jorge's going to be pretty tough to beat again, I think, on Sunday. I mean, kind of mitigating factors, Neil. I mean, you know, he he's fantastic around this particular track. He's obviously adapted well to the Ducati, especially for a rookie in the class. He's only 23 years old. Um, apart from a very questionable taste in, um, you know, nicknames, then, uh, you know, what else can we say about him that, you know, perhaps would halt or uh, stop the, the development of the second coming? Now, what's stopping him becoming another Quattararo quite so quickly? Is it, is it the fact that, you know, when he crashes, he hurts himself? Uh, you know, he, his, his record, I think, in the World Championship, you know, there's always been one or two races missing through injury or illness or whatever else. I guess that is something that, that you have to keep in mind. Yeah, Jorge doesn't necessarily bounce that easily, even in his victorious year in Moto3. He had to overcome a wrist injury at one point, which uh, at the time we thought was maybe going to disrupt his uh, his challenge. Um, also, I'm, I, yeah, I, I, I'm not really sure. I think it's maybe a bit too early to say whether he's uh, he's going to be quite as good as uh, as someone like Quartararo, but... Um, I think you have to look at, at, at Jorge and think that, um, you know, in the years to come, he could be like a, a Quadraro or a Joan Mir, one of the new guys that is up there fighting the likes of uh, of, of Mark Marquez. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was so impressive. And, um, yeah, we're, I, th I think we're going to see something very similar. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw two Jorge Martin wins in Austria this year, to be honest. 
I mean, a stylish rider as well. And you can't argue with his ability to really push a motorcycle over the course of one lap. I think he had a fantastic amount of pole positions in Moto3. Um, I mean, I don't have the, the exact stats to the hand, but, you know, uh, yeah, all the signs are good. And especially, Dave, you know, I know you've got your own view on Jorge Martin, but something else to consider is the fact that the Pramac Ducati is a really, you know, this, this is the, the probably the most successful season for that team yet in terms of, you know, their competitiveness as well as the results. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you look at how many uh, podiums they have with uh, Joan Zarco, um, uh, they've got two poles and uh, and a victory now as well. Their first victory that I think this is the second uh, victory for a satellite team um, since last uh, the last one being uh, last year here when Miguel Oliveira won for Tech Three. Um, well deserved because they've been so close so very many times um, I think what impressed me most about this particular win was the maturity of it uh, he was under a lot of pressure uh, Martin was under a lot of pressure didn't really uh, he just kept riding he didn't worry about it he never panicked he had a plan uh, also the fact that he picked this race out uh, or these next two races this circuit out as a race where he uh, wanted to perform and then he comes and actually does it that I think is also really really mature um, it, it speaks of a like a mental strength and that I think is 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 one of his strongest points uh, yet he does have a tendency to pick up injuries um, that has to be a concern but uh, he more than makes up for it for his uh, with, with his mental strength uh, uh, Juan Mir and um, Fabio Quattararo in the press conference were asked about him you know what you expect from him they said yeah he's really really fast uh, and I think I don't think he's going to gain any speed, but I think he's going to gain consistency. And that is really going to be um, absolutely key. One thing I do wonder about is the whether this, because we saw last year Brad Binder winning. We saw last year, um, or, and this year we see Jorge Martin. These are two rookies who were on the Triumph Motor 2 uh, engines. The Triumph engines are very different to the old Honda engines. The old Honda uh, Motor 2 bikes, you just had to carry as much corner speed as you you could uh, and it, and they had no electronics the new triumph they've got much more torque you can pick them up uh, tire management becomes more of a thing um, uh, electronics becomes more of a thing they have torque maps uh, they have engine braking they've got much more the, the rider has to think much more about the motorcycle uh, instead of just about his riding lines and so I'm wondering if uh, what we're seeing with Binder and with Martin is this progress in Moto2 making its way into MotoGP now you know Triumph haven't been in Moto2 for very long um, but uh, even then I still think it's much better preparation for MotoGP than the previous generation that's also a good point because I, I cannot remember who it was Joan Mir or Quattararo in the press conference also praised Martin's ability to save the tyre um, and to ride intelligently and with a, a deal of strategy I mean it wasn't a case of he was pinning the Ducati and just, you know, hoping for the best. I mean, he rode a very kind of very well-structured race, I think you could say, for that victory. And, um, you know, I, I, with Martin, of course, like you said, Dave, he's come through the categories. He's his first season as well, you know, handling the Michelins. Um, it's a, long, a lot to take on. Uh, and I think, you know, he, he has fantastic potential. I mean, it's curious to me. I wonder how it is within the Pramac team to handle you know, a rider with Joan Zarco's experience and his expectations to, to go for the championship after being near the top since Qatar. 
Um, but then also deal with this this young buck kind of rookie that's that's really coming through. Um, obviously, has no issues with confidence. It would seem uh, when he's fit and healthy. So it's uh, it would you know it's, it's a curious mix. Yeah, yeah, and if you say no, um, no problems with confidence. I mean, I, I quite loved. I loved it on Saturday when, after scoring pole position, he said, "I think we're we're going to be in the fight for the podium." And I thought, goodness, you're, you're speaking a good game. This is a guy that has come here off the back of, um, you know, when he came back from his injury, you could still tell that that was really affecting him. Um, he had to pull out of the Aston race uh, because of his injury. Um, causing him so many issues um, but uh, you know he had some what five weeks away to, to kind of recover recover um, physically uh, mentally again get himself in the zone and um, he was um, a little bit enigmatic he said there's been some changes to my life that I made over the summer months that have made a bit of a difference and uh, I, we still have to glean exactly what those what those changes are but looking at him in Moto3, I mean, he was able to do things in the Moto3 class uh, that I don't think I've seen anyone else really been able to do. And that was just the insane ability to do uh, pole position laps by himself without a pole at all. Um, and the number of poles in Moto3, 20, I mean, that's, that's kind of unparalleled for the class. Um, so it was clear back in 2018, the way he won the title, that race in Sepang particularly really stands out that was just exceptional how he, he basically fought with Pizzecchi all race long but had just something extra in the tank in the final five laps to pull away that was remarkable um, it was clear from then that you know this guy is actually pretty special and it was just a case of him finding the right setup and the right the right team um, to, to, to go forward but um, I guess you could say last year had he not contracted COVID-19 maybe he would have been in the runner for the championship as well um, I think that's that's probably something you could say, um, but uh, well, uh, he's definitely exceeded my expectations for this year. I mean, I was thinking he'd be doing well to get a couple of top tens this year, and here he is with two wins in six races. So, you know, chapeau, Jorge Martin. Another graduate of the Mahindra School of Racing as well. You know, the the Mahindra the Mahindra Motor Three bike has turned into a real uh, sort of uh, producer of champions because. The bike handled, but it was slow. So you had to get more out of yourself than out of the bike. And um, that, yeah, I, it, it proves, it really brought a lot of riders on. You know, Brad Binder was the, were, it, it's another one, just, you know, the, 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 the whole lot. What about the prospects of, you know, people like Enea Bastianini and, and Luca Marini? I mean, the, the contrast in their results and their development with the, with the Desmond Stichy is quite stark. I mean, obviously we're talking maybe different technical packages, but... You know, there's, they, they haven't looked anywhere close to, to Martin's potential. Well, if you look at Marini and Bastianini, I mean, they're in a different team. Obviously, they also have the same uh, backing. Uh, they're on the older bike. Um, they don't... Um, they don't have the support. But, but Pramac is really part of the... It, it, I mean, it's the Ducati factory junior team. Um, Jorge Martin was saying, you know, like, look, I'm on a factory bike. Why would I not be as fast as the others? Uh, I think that's been a big, big factor. Um, I think also... <sighs> Again, yeah, Bastianini has been a bit up and down, um, uh, but he seems to be a little bit more consistent than Martin. I mean, yeah, sure, more, Martin has had two poles and uh, two poles and two podiums, you know, including a win. But he's also been sort of 
nowhere sometimes. Uh, Marini seems to be sort of stuck at a certain point. Martinez learned really, really quickly. I think that's the that, that, that's the big thing. Uh, Bastianini shown flashes of brilliance and um, uh, but been a little bit slower. But I think the the biggest difference is obviously just you know the bike. They are on a year old bike and that's uh, and they're on a year old bike in one of the poorest teams and that is uh, that that's been the big difference. Just before we head into the next break, I want to ask you both a question. Uh, who do we think, you know, we're talking about Jorge Martin boosting his confidence with this achievement. Um, who do we think is on the all-time low of confidence? Is it a toss-up? It's obviously a toss-up between Paulus Bagger and Maverick Vinales, but, uh, you know, is one situation more dire than the other? Oh, yeah, Maverick. No, yes, yes, yeah. Paulus Bagaros is worse. The bike is what it is. Um... Uh, and he stuck there. He stuck there for another year. And he, every race, he understands more that he is just a Honda employee and he's not in charge and he does as he's told. And, um, you know, this is not the situ, the situation is not what he thought it was from the outside. Like so many riders before, like Marco Melandri becoming the teammate of Casey Stoner. Uh, like Valentino Rossi going to Ducati, um, like Jorge Lorenzo going to Honda. Um, you know, you go to these places and find out that it's not, it's not the way from the outside. It's very, very different looking. It's much rosier picture from the outside than it is from the inside. I would concur with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Much worse for Paulus Bargaro. At least Maverick has shown flashes. I mean, Maverick in the first race was looking really good. Um, was up there fighting with um, with Fabio, with Mark um, inside the top six. Looked pretty aggressive. Made a good start from uh, the third row, um, and you know was on the podium uh, at Aston before the summer break. So there are a lot of very frustrating um, circumstances um, within Maverick's character and how he performs. But where at least he has been performing on certain occasions this year, nowhere near consistently enough to, to fight for the championship, which we expect him to do. Um, but at least there is those occasions with Paul at the moment. He just looks so lost and so dispirited. And I mean, it's, it's tough to see. Um, this guy was fighting for both of the race wins at, uh, at the Red Bull Ring last year. Um, at least a challenger. Uh, coming into the race, one of the guys um, expected to fight for the race win. This year he was 30 seconds, more than 30 seconds off. He just said it was embarrassing, frankly. Um, and uh, yeah, the fact that the, the Honda really isn't produced, able to produce any um, rear grip going into corners, coming out of corners, he said it's just spinning, means that he can't utilize his own strengths, he can't util utilize the bike strengths, um, and he just looks a million miles away off where he needs to be. I'm sure, you know, Paulus Bargaro has gone over the decision to join HRC and to leave a team where he was loved, uh, revered, you know, and, and development had been based around his riding style. Um, but yeah, yeah, you have to kind of wonder if part of him thinks if I don't take it, then I'll spend the rest of my career, maybe even the rest of my days for some years thinking, well, I had an HRC offer on the table and I didn't go for it. I mean, it's, sometimes it's, it's better the devil you, you don't know rather than you know, if you know what I mean, like Dave pointed out. So it takes takes a brave, brave uh, athlete, I think, to turn down, you know, the, the most successful kind of race team, you know, in the World Championship and, and a seat next to, you know, an utterly peerless rider, um, even if he was coming back from injury and there were question marks over whether Mark Marquez could reach the heights of his, his, his former glories. So... 
a difficult situation for Espargaro. We're going to move into our second break now. And then uh, when we come back, we're going to see what Dave has up his Austrian skirt to show us on his talking point. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Dave, I'm disappointed that you haven't put on the uh, the, the Austrian attire for, for the final section of the show. But um, again, just coming back to the, the Grand Prix Styria, uh, anything that you would like to air or to chat about? Uh, well, yeah, Maverick Villiers. What happened to Maverick Villiers? We were talking about him uh, uh, before. You know, who's the most uh, who's the most depressed at the moment? Maverick Villiers is going to be riding at a, uh, an Aprilia next year, so he'll probably be a little bit more depressed next year when um, the bike breaks down from time to time. Um, this time, I think that Maverick got a bit. Of, I mean, Maverick was really unlucky this weekend. Um, the first race, he had a fantastic start actually made up like three places which he never does at the start uh had some was battling really strong and was actually making some really aggressive moves which is completely unmaverick like on the uh on the opening laps um then the race gets red flagged they come in they change the clutch um he goes back out he stores the bike on the grid uh, he pushes the bike into uh, pit lane uh, and i think in that process of pushing the bike into the in pit lane he then goes through uh, because you have 30 seconds from the moment the last bike passes pit lane exit until uh, uh, to, basically to get out of pit lane and join the warm up lap um as he, there are there are two sets of traffic lights, or uh, uh, you know, traffic lights for for pit lane, uh, for pit lane exit. There's the one in pit lane to show people whether it's uh, whether the, the pit lane exit is open or not, and then there's a, another set of lights at the actual pit lane exit because the actual pit lane exit is round the corner up the hill uh, and the lights were green as he rode past them uh, on the exit of the physical pit the pits if you like but the actual pit lane by the time he got there they were red but he went just across the uh, uh, just across the the uh, the, the the start line for pit lane exit um the trouble is in all of these things there are pit there are timing loops and these timing loops are used to control the electronics and that seems to have thrown his electronics into a bit of a tizzy and so which is why he had a message on his dashboard saying pit lane all the way uh, during the race i don't know how else it might have affected his um, his electronics these these things are uh, all of these loops are used to tie to, to to control certain aspects of the bike um so that just completely wrecked his race it meant that he came in at the end he didn't meant he didn't know that he had a long lap penalty until he actually saw someone holding up a board at the end saying long lap penalty um it didn't know that he exceeded track limits um because that was just not showing on his dash because his dash was um uh, was confused so yeah it's an interesting it's also interesting that this is one of those things where it's one of those situations where the people who put we program these systems, put these systems all together because, you know, the ECUs are programs, the dashboards are programs. It's actually a little separate little system. Um, they have to try and figure out all of the possible things that might happen during uh, during a race. What they 
what is extremely unlikely to happen is that someone uh, comes off the grid, goes into pit lane, crosses pit lane exit, is pushed back across pit lane exit, but he's not pushed back across pit lane exit to go back into uh, into the garage to have it have the bike fixed or something, where they would reset the system and you know basically you know switch it off and switch it back on again to get it working properly. Um, it was just one of these weird edge cases where uh, all of these completely unexpected events come together to completely uh, sort of you know upset the entire bike and of course it happens to maverick vinales because these things always happen to maverick vinales uh, dave we just had a slight technical problem on the podcast would you be able to describe the process of the pit lane exit again um yeah, it would be uh <laughs> no joking aside uh, we, were, we were we were watching you know from from the other side of course of the pit lane and, and one thing was noticeable was as maverick came in I mean, of course, the, the mechanics came across, started the bike as quick as they could. He roared off, then thought, right, I've got to engage the, the pit lane speed limiter. Uh, otherwise, he's going to be penalized once more. I think that, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, infringement actually comes with a monetary fine I think if, you, if you're you know, speeding through the pit lane. So he jams this thing on and the bike kind of chugs into a, like, you know, the, the 60 mile, 60 kilometers an hour limit or whatever it is. Yeah. And then, you know, proceeded up through, like you said, to the, the first corner. So it was, uh, you know, all the time he's shaking his head, he's gesturing. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a quite unsettling sequence of affairs, really. Uh, and like you say, it's just another kind of um, bad story in the case of Mabuñales and Yamaha in the last couple of years, where the high points have been far too infrequent. Yeah, and the thing, like I say, there, there was just so many things, all of these things had to go just wrong in exactly the wrong sequence uh, for, for, to, to create this situation. And um, it's uh, it, it's just remarkable that it was Maverick Vinales who managed to trigger this uh, uh, this uh, set of events. I'm curious, Dave, that you think, you know, things might become worse for him at Aprilia next year. I mean, if anything, I, was, I wasn't too impressed by the dramatics with Alessia Spargaro. Uh, of course, you know, he knows, you know, about Mark Marcus's... Uh, tendency to get aggressive on the track or to certainly assert himself when it comes to his space. Um, but on the replays of the first corner, you know, Mark obviously was pushed a little bit wide. There was not much place for him to go. And Alesh was the victim coming out of that. But, you know, if you'd seen the images when he came back to the, the pit lane, you'd think, you know, Marcus had thrown something at him. I mean, it was, uh, he was seriously offended by the gesture. So, uh, you know, Alessia may have a personal opinion of Mark that he's uh, a walking or a riding hazard, a mobile hazard on the track. But I was thinking, you know, if, if Maverick Mignanis goes to be his teammate next year, uh, what does that mean for Alesh? I mean, does that kind of signal, does that start the clock on his MotoGP career? Because if Mignanis can really increase the performance of that package and aim for results, then, you know, the spotlight's going to be a little bit on him. Um, as up until now, he's been largely the lead rider. Andre Iannone wasn't able to you know, kind of really supersede him in terms of results or performance in any way. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, there's a few things. First of all, like Alesh and Mark have history. Uh, if you remember, uh, what is it? Oh, um, uh, uh, Argentina 2016, 2017, where uh, that wet race where... Uh, Mark Marquez ended up uh, uh, being uh, demoted, uh, being given a massive penalty for basically using playing dodging, uh, playing dodgems while uh, uh, while on a racetrack. But um, so they, yeah, they're, they're, there's a long history between those two. Um, I think Maverick Vinales 
uh, will go well on the Aprilia. And I do think it does start the clock on uh, Alicia Spargaro's uh, uh, MotoGP career. The other thing is, uh, next year he's going to be the oldest rider. I think he's 32, 33. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Dovi was 34 last year and look where he is this year. Uh, and if... Maverick Vinales is on the bike, then you get a real sense of, okay, this is where we are. This is where the bike is. We This is a proven race winner. And if he is at a given point, that then becomes much more attractive to Moto2 rookies. It becomes much more attractive also to dissatisfied riders uh, uh, on other factory bikes or uh, riders in satellite teams. It becomes a much more uh, attractive proposition. And then, you know, 2023 comes around. Uh, it, it, it becomes a lot more interesting but the, the problem with the Aprilia is that they have too many technical problems how many times have we seen we saw it this time again uh, the bike breaks down um, they still have too many of those and I think that is going to frustrate Maverick Neil um, you know yeah, Aprilia were rumoured to have given a large contract offer to Ralph Fernandez, which indicates that you know the possibility of signing Maverick was perhaps not their number one goal maybe they wanted more of a younger rider to develop and, and to grow with the machinery uh, you know, Maverick doesn't have a great deal of other options in, inside MotoGP. Uh, what, what's your kind of view on that potential move? Is, is it the best for him at the moment or could he do with doing a Dobby and even taking a year out? No, I think uh, he needs to stay in, in competition because as we've seen with Dobby, it's not very easy to get back in. Um, although it does seem that Dobby maybe has been slightly reluctant to come back and, and join Aprilia as a full-time rider. Um, but um, no, I think Vinales definitely still has to race. He's in his, you know, he's in the should be in the prime of his career in terms of age. He's, what, 27 now? Um, and, uh, yeah, it's interesting also that um, Italian media were reporting over the weekend that the Aprilia deal is just one year. So it basically brings him up to the the next big kind of end of contract phase. Um, so you wonder whether Maverick will see it maybe as a as a chance to to keep his options open, really, not commit full-time to Aprilia, maybe have some good races and see about getting a seat in Ducati maybe, for example, in 2023. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, Aleish is, has been riding really well this year, but that pretty is a really strong bike. Um, I don't think there's any denying it. Aleish was talking about having the potential to finish fifth um, on Sunday, had it not been for the mechanical issues and the issues at turn one with Marquez. So um, fifth at the Red Bull ring, that is a massive, massive step forward. And we've been saying this every, pretty much every race about how the Aprilia has made giant strides forward. Um, so, yeah, stick a, a guy that has won a world championship before, uh, won MotoGP races before um, on it. And, um, yeah, well, as Dave says, we'll get a, a real indication of just how strong it is. I think the most the thing that would m most concern me if I was uh, Maverick Vinales is uh, look back at that history apart from, uh, apart from Alessia Spargaro, uh, you know, they had first of all they they had um, Stefan Bradl and Alvaro Bautista. They got rid of those quite quickly. Uh, Scott Redding came in; he got kicked out. Uh, Sam Lowe's came in; he got kicked out. Andrea Iannone came in; uh, that was a bit of a disaster. And then um, you know he got banned. Uh, uh, he ended up with a with a drug ban. Bradley Smith. Bradley Smith. Salvadori. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, basically. It doesn't seem like a particularly, uh, it's not a particularly warm, uh, uh, cherishing, you know, environment through which to bring someone on. And that to me seems what 
Maverick needs most of all is a proper environment, a family environment uh, to make him feel comfortable, to make him feel warm, to get the best out of him. I would say, though, that does seem to be one of the reasons that Massimo Rivola has been brought in and one of the things that he is a lot better at than um, Romano Albesiano, who's more technically minded, but certainly not people minded. Um, you would maybe say that his skills in terms of how he is with riders is, is, is very much lacking. But I think Alves, um, sorry, I think uh, Rivola certainly has a bit more of that armor on the shoulder um, thing to him that is, is kind of crucial with team managers. Yeah, I think it's definitely the case over the last 18 months where pretty uh, in, in terms of their team structure or maybe, uh, you know, the way they like to operate um, has, uh, has changed. So it's, uh, it'd be curious to, to see who they welcome in and how they deal with them. Two very quick questions to finish the podcast, gentlemen. Um, the first one, who do we think will be in that Petronas Yamaha seat? Of course, you know, Valentino Rossi retired on, on the eve of the Grand Prix. Um, Franco Morbidelli heavily rumoured to be moving next to his old teammates in the factory Yamaha team. So we have two spare Yamahas, uh, one slightly old and or long in the tooth, um, another one potentially a full factory bike that Valentino Rossi is currently riding. Not just slightly rumoured, but uh, confirmed in an exclusive interview with modelmatters.com. Ah, well, we've... Uh, Yes, we've heavily promoted that already, Neil, in the Paddock Pass uh, podcast notes show. But There's enough talk about that, well, that rubbish website. <laughs> I'm sure we can do it again uh, just once we've turned off the recording. Um, and so the first question, you know, who will, who will be filling those Yamaha seats? And Dave, I look forward to hearing your your uh, answer based on the interview with Lynn Jarvis, of course, which uh, I think is subscribers, a subscri- subscriber-only no, I mean, content the, on Motor Matters. No, there was a, the, there's a new story up about, um, uh, uh, basically about Morbidelli going up to the... The, going up to the factory team uh, that was confirmed that's uh, that, that's not for subscribers the, the whole interview which is going to be fascinating he talks a lot about Mario Vinales Valentino Rossi uh, the whole thing he talks a lot about all sorts of subjects also about the MSMA he was very interesting about the MSMA um uh, that'll be for subscribers. That'll be up some uh, sometime next week, but that's sort of much, much uh, longer term. I think what he did say is that uh, uh, they have a good relationship with uh, the VR46 Academy, um, and that to me hinted at having Marco Bezzecchi on the bike. Um, then the question is, who goes on the uh, second VR46 bike? Uh, that That's a different question altogether. Uh, but I think Bezzecchi is, is going to be one of the riders there, and the second by I have absolutely no idea. I, it, it could be Garrett Gerloff. It might be someone from Moto2. If someone has a really, really good few races, uh, you know, Ayagura, he had a really good uh, uh, race this uh, this weekend, um, apart from a few sort of brain fades. But yeah, I, I, think it, I think it's very, very open who could be on that second mic. Uh, we had a question from one of the listeners, Ewan, on Twitter, who actually asked if Bezeki would be in for the running on the Petronas seat. And, you know, you pretty much answered the question there, Dave. Um, it seems some of the speculation from Austria at the weekend would be that Petronas would chuck a rookie straight into the mix. I mean, Darren Binder's name was mentioned. Uh, Jake Dixon's case, you know, the only thing supporting him, I think, was the fact of his nationality. Uh, BT Sports, of course, having one of the larger TV contracts with Dorna for MotoGP. Uh, so his name was also in, in you know, quite a, a growing ring of uh, contenders for that saddle. Um, my second question was, you know, who do we think is going to win, um, you know, for the Grand Prix of, Dave? Oster... Österreich. 
Osterreich. Right. Okay. Thank you very much. So um, I'm not going to answer the question on the Patronus because like you, Dave, I've got absolutely no idea. I think it would be very difficult to, to throw somebody like Binder straight out of Moto3 into MotoGP, even though there is precedent there. Not, not particularly successful precedents, but, you know, uh, you know, it has been done. So no idea on that one, but um, I'll, I'll stick my uh, five-euro note on Juan Mir for, for this weekend. I think uh, from the lessons he'd learned already coming back to action after the summer break and with the developments on the Suzuki, he'll be the man to beat. Uh, Neil, over to you. Ooh, I don't want to annoy you and do one of those things where I list four or five names. However... Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back again <laughs> with the Paddock's Nation. <laughs> I think that, uh, okay, Jorge Martin to win again. What, what you should do, Neil, is just say um, the winner is going to, the, the, the last name of the winner will start with the letter M because that's li- at this point about being you know, about three, uh, three quarters of the grid. So uh, it should be fine. Just a brief interlude during uh, Model 2 or Model 3 FP3 or FP2 on uh, Friday afternoon. I asked my commentator partner, Matt Dunn, if he foresaw anyone outside the top six in the championship uh, just, um, you know, coming up and f- starting to win races, uh, finish on the podium. And his answer would have made both of you guys proud. He, he literally went down the championship table and named every name from seventh place to about 15th and said, yeah, they, they could be, they could do that. They could win. They could, they could finish on the podium. So, um, yeah, I'll... Uh, but I'll, I'll nail my colours to the, fl- to the mast and say uh, Jorge Martin, I think. Um, the R46, uh, Neil, do you think you know they're going to be the main supply routes of Patronus or could we expect uh, a surprise? Um, I mean, certainly some reliable outlets were reporting that Pizeki is, is one of the names there. Um, and uh, with regards to the other one, it does seem that I think Augusto Fernandez said, yeah, I'm on the list of, of possibilities that could move up, but I'm one of 10 names. So, um, yeah, there was all sorts of uh, of names mentioned over the weekend that I thought previously had never even been in the running. So um, it does seem to be um, completely wide open. But I did see on speedweek.com today, um, uh, Lynn Jarvis had also spoken to uh, Gunther Wiesinger and uh, he, Lynn had told him in that instance that uh, Gerloff uh, isn't ruled out. If 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 Yamaha want Gerloff there, they could they could make that happen. Even though I think he he signed a deal to stay in Superbike for next year. Gerloff has an option in his contract uh, to go to a MotoGP deal though, so um, it, he is signed up officially for next year in uh, World Superbikes, but he has an option to go to MotoGP if he wants to. I mean, if we're talking about Americans, I mean, Cameron Bobier could also be another option, uh, you know, after, you know, his tenure in Moto2. Um, it was interesting to see his agent, Bob Moore, um, talking around the paddock this weekend. So he's obviously looking to place, you know, some of his riders somewhere. Um, but, you know, get Jonathan Ray on the bike. Get the best rider ever in superbike history. Put him in there. I mean, then you're, you're adding another element of the best of the best to, to the MotoGP. Yeah, I mean, Petrucci, I'd swap Petrucci for Ray. Uh, uh, Petrucci straight into World Superbikes. Um, uh, Jonathan Ray into MotoGP. I think it'd be good for both series. Petrucci's a fantastic character. Uh, it would make the racing a lot more interesting. Um, uh, Jonathan Ray on a... Uh, uh, I mean, I think Jonathan would only come if he came on a two-year deal, so he's got a guarantee and a guarantee of uh, up-to-date material. Um, but I'm not sure that... Uh, Raslan Rosali wants 
old riders on his bikes. And I think that's also the problem for Cameron Bobier. Um, they, it, it, it's a youth uh, team. That's what they want. And um, I would just like to say that as for the winner, I'm going to uh, see uh, Adam Wheeler's five euros and uh, double it and say, yeah, I will. I think I would put 10 euros on John Mir winning next week. Um, that's interesting, Dave. 10 euros coming from your pocket is uh, always uh, an interesting thing. Um, and I would just say with regards to Ray, I mean, I, We've, we've spoken countless times about how much we would love to see Johnny Ray in, in MotoGP, but I just don't think it's going to happen. It just seems that all the noise is coming out of Yamaha, coming out of Petronas, is they want a rider in his young 20s um, to be on in that team. Um, again, to go back to Jarvis's interview with Speedweek, he said, does Johnny Ray have a long future in the MotoGP paddock? No. Is he a proven talent? Yes. But does he have a long future in MotoGP? No. So... I mean, that pretty much rules out the, the Ray or the, the Davizioso um, speculation that uh, had uh, surfaced over the summer. Neil, David, thanks ever so much for talking. Uh, this is the end of this edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. As ever, please send us any comments or any feedback. Um, it's good to hear your thoughts or your questions. We'll try to get them answered uh, throughout the course of the show. Uh, we should have a follow-up um, episode as well this week before we jump back into Red Bull Ring, and then we'll be back uh, with the uh, non-Patreon content um, the following week, of course. Um, as the Grand Prix goes on on the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, a couple of us will be jumping on a call together to talk about what's happened, who said what, uh, whose bike has blown up and whatever else. So, um, you know, if you want to check out our Patreon channel, you'll be able to find some pretty exclusive content there. Thanks to Fly Racing and, of course, Rental. And uh, we'll join you again next week. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.